This is the emdocs.net podcast with Britt Long and Manny Singh. We bring you high-yield content about what you're seeing every day in the ED. Peripheral IV access is a very common procedure in the ED, and it's an essential component of managing critically ill patients. We do this a lot, but in up to 30% of patients, we'll have difficulty obtaining vascular access. Now, we all know factors that are associated with difficult access, things like obesity, diabetes, IV drug use, and peripheral vascular disease. While some of these patients may require central venous catheter placement, we do have some tricks up our sleeve for obtaining initial vascular access. There are some ways we can break down vascular access. I like to think about it in the patient who's crashing versus that patient who's hemodynamically stable. In the crashing patient, hopefully they have IV access, but if you're unable to obtain IV access, then shoot for the IO. In the patient who's otherwise stable, you have a variety of other options. You can look at cannulating the external jugular vein, performing an ultrasound-guided IV, or finally, performing an easy IJ. We're going to cover all of these in today's podcast. First, let's look at that crashing patient. Now, I really want to emphasize the importance of obtaining large-bore peripheral access, hopefully something like a 16-gauge IV. The flow rates for one of these IVs is much higher than that of a triple lumen central venous catheter. We'll include a table in the show notes. But just for some background, a 14 or a 16-gauge peripheral IV has a flow rate with pressure of over 300 milliliters per minute. If you look at a 16 or 18-gauge distal port triple lumen catheter, the flow rates are around about 100 milliliters per minute. In general, really, you need two points of access for a critical patient. If you can't obtain a peripheral IV, then go for IO access. On average, you can obtain IO access in about four to five seconds. During a cardiac arrest, IO placement has much higher success rates and faster placement than central lines. You can also use these for any fluid, blood product, or medication. While your infusion rates through an IO are less than that of a peripheral IV, they're still pretty good. For a tibia or humerus IO, the flow rate with pressure approximates about 150 milliliters per minute. We're not going to look at IO access in detail, as we covered this in a prior podcast. Just remember that once you've obtained IO access, in that patient who's awake, infuse some lidocaine. So that was our hemodynamically unstable patient. Let's move to the stable patient. Like I mentioned, you have a couple different options for these patients. You do need to consider what you're going to be using that line for. And first, do you actually need the line? One study suggested up to half of these IVs are never used again. So if you're going to use a line just for obtaining labs, then just perform a peripheral stick. If you're going to use an IV for fluid, resuscitation, repeat labs, medication infusion, or imaging, then obviously you'll need the IV. If you're thinking you're going to need a contrast-enhanced CT, then preferably you're going to want a lower-gauge catheter, something like an 18 to 20-gauge, or something even bigger in size. You'll also want a proximal IV, like the antecubital fossa or above. That's enough on background. Let's go to some techniques. So the first one is a landmark-based technique. This is essentially our go-to for most patients. Many patients will come in stating that they are a difficult stick. There are some studies looking at how many attempts patients actually required, and in one study, only 14% required more than three attempts, 
or a rescue technique like ultrasound-guided IV. Prior to attempting any peripheral IV insertion, see if your ancillary staff has tried a smaller gauge needle. Gentle fluid hydration and many medications can be administered through a 22-gauge catheter. So that patient with multiple failed attempts with cannulation using an 18 or 20-gauge needle can often be rescued by just switching to a smaller bore catheter. Let's talk about some adjuncts to increase vein diameter and your success rate. First, use gravity to your advantage by placing the target vessel below the level of the heart. Second, you can apply a tourniquet. Next, have the patient pump their fist by clenching and relaxing it. You can also lightly tap along the vein, which can induce venodilation. Also, think about milking the vein proximal to distal, which can again increase vein diameter, and you can apply warmth, which can again increase vein diameter. Once your landmark base attempts have been unsuccessful, you have some other options. You can use the external jugular vein or ultrasound. The external jugular vein is often successful in these patients. To obtain this access, place the patient in Trendelenburg position and have them rotate their head away from the target vessel. While you're standing at the head of the bed, use your non-dominant thumb to provide traction and then use your index finger to compress the vein proximally. Cannulate the vessel midway between the angle of the jaw and the clavicle. You can also have the patient perform a valsalva maneuver, which can further distend the vessel. That's the EJ. Let's move on to an EM staple, and that's the ultrasound-guided IV. Ultrasound-guided IV placements have been shown to be highly successful, but failure rates can be as high as 45 to 50%. There are a few pointers that can help you maximize success and the longevity of the IV. Make sure you're seated comfortably and the machine is well positioned so you can easily see both the screen and the extremity you're working on. Make sure you have the correct alignment on the screen. The left side of the screen should correspond with the dot on your ultrasound probe. Next, you want to locate a vein that is straight and position your probe perpendicular to it. Make sure you scan the vessel proximally and distally. You don't want that vessel veering off when you're trying to obtain access. Next, don't push too hard on the vein with the probe. This is one of the biggest pitfalls because pressure collapses the vein. The ultrasound probe should really just hover over the skin, providing a minimal amount of pressure. When scanning for veins, always start distally and work your way proximally until you find an adequate vessel. Look for veins that are superficial and wide. The deeper you go, the greater the chance that you're going to fail. Make sure you utilize a longer catheter, ideally something over 1.8 or even 2.5 inches, which increases the lifespan of the IV. Also keep in mind that the greater the length of the catheter within the vessel, the greater the chance of success. Once you've obtained flash upon entry into the vessel, try to advance the needle tip as far into the vessel as possible before advancing the catheter over the needle. While you're advancing the needle in the vein, maintain your probe position at the tip in order to avoid backwalling through the vessel, increasing your risk of extravasation and failure of the catheter. One final and very important note. While there is limited evidence that probe covers and adhesive barriers limit infection, ASEP recommends the use of such barriers. So try to perform this with sterile gel and appropriate probe covers. Next, let's look at the Easy IJ. This relatively newer technique requires much less time, resources, and less risk to the patient when you compare it to a normal central venous catheter. The Easy IJ involves placing an extra long 18-gauge single lumen catheter, usually something that we use for ultrasound-guided IVs, in the internal jugular vein. 
there are several studies that have looked at easy IJ placement. In one ED study, in patients who had failed traditional ultrasound-guided IV placement, this technique was successful in 88% of patients. There was no incidence of line infection, arterial puncture, or pneumothorax. The only complication was loss of catheter patency in about 14% of patients. Insertion time is about 5 minutes, which, compared to 20 minutes for a normal central line placement, is pretty outstanding. Keep in mind that they should be kept in place a maximum of 24 hours due to the risk of line infection. One final point for difficult vascular access. Many centers now utilize midline catheters as an alternative to placing ultrasound-guided IVs and even central lines. One observational study of ED patients showed this was successful in 99% of patients with a median of one attempt. Severe complications only occurred in 3 out of 403 ED patients. There was one arterial puncture and two extravasations. There were also no line infections or DVTs. All right, so let's go over some key points when it comes to difficult vascular access. First, break this down into those who are hemodynamically unstable versus those who are stable. If the patient is crashing and you don't have peripheral IV access, don't hesitate to place an IO. You can use IOs for volume resuscitation and medication infusion. When it comes to the stable patient, question whether they need an IV in the first place. If you're using the landmark-based approach, use adjunctive techniques to increase your rate of success. You have several other options when it comes to the stable patient. You can use the external jugular vein or an ultrasound-guided IV. When you're placing an ultrasound-guided IV, vessels that are more superficial and wider in diameter will lead to increased successful placement. Longer catheters with the majority of the catheter actually within the vessel prolong the life of the IV. If ultrasound-guided peripheral IV placement isn't successful, consider an easy IJ before you place a central venous catheter. Finally, midline catheter placement is an emerging alternative to both ultrasound-guided IVs and central venous catheters. Thanks for joining us on the emdocs.net podcast. Stay safe and healthy, everyone.